Shah Abdali invades Hindustan again and decimates the tottering Mughal Empire. The Six Rise. Before we begin the episode, I have some exciting news. The stories that you've enjoyed so much on this podcast are now available in print. Penguin Books recently published the story of the Six, 1469 to 1708, which corresponds to the first two seasons. You've been generous with your praise, listeners, and many of you have contacted us to ask how you can support the Story of the Six podcast. Well, guess what? We're now on Patreon. Please go to tinyurl.com psots and make a contribution, which will help fund our new endeavors, Sarkar, The Rise and Fall of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, and the Gurmit Sangeet podcast. A new power structure was in place during the reign of Alamgir II in Delhi. The young vizier, Imadul Mulk, had built an alliance with the Marathas by paying them obscene amounts of money. He had a formidable army, at the core of which was the 12,000-strong Badakshi Brigade, deserters from the forces of the late Nawab of Awadh, Saftarjang. The emperor, Alamgir II, who Imad ul-Mulk had placed on the throne by deposing Ahmad Shah, was a feeble 55-year-old who had spent his entire life in the Dori e Salatin, the place in Delhi where the male descendants of past Mughal emperors were held in confinement. Son of the former emperor Jahandar Shah, he had lived in captivity for 41 years spending his days in poverty and neglect without the benefit of an education that would have prepared him for the task of ruling. He had taken the name of his illustrious great-grandfather, Alamgir or Aurangzeb, when he had been elevated to the throne by Imadul Mulk. He was every bit as pious as Aurangzeb, committed to his daily routine of prayer, and possessed a deep love of history. Like Aurangzeb, he disdained music and dance, which most of the other emperors and nobles absolutely loved. Unlike Aurangzeb, however, he had no contact with his army, never even inspecting his troops. Neither did he ever go riding or hunting. He did, however, take a keen interest in the affairs of the state. Unlike his predecessor, and reinstituted formal darbars and personally read petitions. Like his predecessor, he was hampered by an empty treasury and presided over a crumbling empire where regional governors had become largely independent 
and powerful chiefs routinely rebelled against the throne. Imad al-Mulk had triumphed, but he was surrounded by powerful enemies. His mother's brother, Intazam al-Dawla, who he had deposed as vizier, continued to live in Delhi, his mansion protected by 600 soldiers. Shuja al-Dawla, the Nawab of Awadh, whose father Safdar Jung had also been defeated and deposed as vizier by Imad al-Mulk, was another powerful enemy who coveted the position of wazir, which had been held by his father, who he thought had been unfairly treated. Najib Khan Rohila, a powerful Afghan chief, who had become a power broker in Delhi, was also arrayed against Imadul Mulk. The other force to reckon with was the Jat king Surajmal, another former ally of Saftar Jung, who from his strongholds in Bharatpur, Deeg, and Kumbher had defied Imad ul-Mulk and the Marathas. Even more potent was the threat from Afghanistan, and the brash Imad ul-Mulk's actions had been a provocation. Ahmad Shah Abdali, to whom Lahore had been ceded by the previous emperor, had conferred the governorship upon Mughlani Begum, with her uncle Khaja Abdullah Khan as her deputy. Imadul Mulk was back in Delhi, where he had brought Mughlani Begum and her daughter Umda Begum, who he had been engaged to, but had no intention of marrying. Imadul Mulk, without Abdali's knowledge, had taken control over Lahore and installed Mir Munim as the new governor with his hand-picked lieutenant, Sayyid Jamiluddin as his deputy. The deposed deputy governor, Khaja Abdullah Khan, who had fled when Imadul Mulk's men took Lahore, went to Kandahar and complained to Abdali, who was furious. The Afghan king sent a large force from Kandahar under Jangbaz Khan, which was joined by a force from Peshawar under Abdus Samad Khan to recover Lahore. Khaja Mirza, the late Mir Manu's former lieutenant, who had been sent to Kandahar in chains, was also sent back with Abdullah Khan. Sayyid Jamiluddin sent desperate pleas of help to Adina Beg, who refused to get involved, and the deputy governor fled Lahore. The residents of Lahore, who had experienced the depredations of the Afghans before, started fleeing the city. The Afghans entered Lahore on October 4, 1756. Khaja Abdullah was installed as governor with Khaja Mirza as his deputy, and the Afghans plundered Lahore without restraint. Ahmad Shah Abdali's fourth invasion of Hindustan had begun. His envoy, Kalandar Beg Khan, arrived in Delhi in late October to express Abdali's displeasure at the removal of his chosen governors of Lahore. By mid-November, Amatshah Abdali had reached Peshawar with his main force, and his vanguard, under the command of his son Tamur Shah, had arrived at Hassan Abdal. This time, Amatshah Abdali had Delhi in his sights. Adina Beg and his deputy Sadiq Beg both fled, and Jahan Khan, Abdali's general, 
occupied the land up to the Sutlage River without any opposition by early December. The Afghans took Sirand by the end of December and pushed on to Panipat. Vazir Madhul Mulk had been desperately casting about for allies to oppose the Afghan advance. He first approached Najib Khan Ruhilla, who demanded the back pay that the vizier already owed his soldiers and refused to help. The vizier then turned to his old adversary Surajmal, who agreed to meet with him. Surajmal was amenable, but he had conditions. His territories had been under attack by the Marathas forever. He suggested that the vizier personally lead the force opposing Abdali, made up of Rohilas, Jats and Rajputs and the old Mughal chiefs. However, he also wanted the new coalition to oppose the Marathas and confine them to the south of the Narmada River. He promised a grand victory against the Afghans, like the one in Manupur in 1748. Imadul Mulk, whose power was propped up by the Marathas, was unwilling to abandon them. The negotiations broke down, and Surajmal returned to his impregnable forts. As Amachah Abdali approached, Vizier Imadul Mulk's desperation increased. Mughlani Begum was a great favorite of Amachah's, and the vizier had deposed her and virtually made her a prisoner. He was going to be held personally accountable. He fired off letters to Shujao Dola, the Marathas, and anyone else he could think of, summoning them to the defense of the capital. Panic set in, and the nobles of Delhi sent their families to Agra and Mathura, considered safe because they were under the control of Raja Surajmal. Najib Khan Rohila, in the meantime, had turned traitor and joined the Afghans. On the morning of January 18, Abdali's envoys arrived to summon the Mughal vizier. Imadul Mulk, early the next day, mounted a horse and with a small escort of four men, secretly rode out of Delhi to meet Ahmad Shah Abdali. He was received with great courtesy by Shah Wali Khan, Abdali's vizier, and taken to the Afghan king. Imadul Mulk received a tongue lashing from Amachah Abdali, who berated him for spurning the high-born Umda Begum and marrying a courtesan's daughter, Ganna Begum, instead. Since Mughlani Begum was like a daughter to Abdali, he was outraged at what he considered to be an unbearable slight. Abdali also poured scorn on the vizier, who represented a noble royal house for doing nothing to stop the Afghan invasion. Imadul Mulk protested, trying to justify his actions. He had made a prior commitment to Ganna Begum, he said, which he had to honor. The defection of the Rohilas had robbed him of the force that could have opposed Abdali, making resistance futile. The Afghan king, however was unimpressed by the explanations. Ahmad Shah Abdali revealed that Imadul Mulk's uncle, Intazam Uddala, had offered him 20 million rupees in return for being appointed vizier again. He offered Imadul Mulk the opportunity to retain his position by paying half the sum. When Imadul Mulk expressed his inability to pay, he was taken captive. 
largely to prevent him from reaching out to his Maratha allies for help. More defections followed. Imadul Mulk's former Badakhshi brigade appealed to Najib Khan Rohila and asked that they be allowed to join his ranks. More than 10,000 gunners, formerly in the service of Avad, and 5,000 Afghans from Kasur also joined the Afghan forces. Abdali's already formidable force thus grew by more than 25,000. Amitya Abdali made his triumphant entry into Delhi on January 28, 1757. The Qutbah, or the sermon at the main mosque of Delhi, the Jama Masjid, was read in the name of Amitya Abdali. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar, in his work, Fall of the Mughal Empire, Volume 2, describes how Alamgir II reacted to the triumph of Amitya Abdali. Alamgir then seated in the chapel of the fort, heard the news, washed his hands off the kingship, vacated the royal chambers and the lower portico for occupation by his successor, handed over their keys to an officer of Najib, and moved with his entire family to the Shah Burj quarter. Two days later, he was ordered to vacate even this refuge and return to the small commonplace rooms in which he used to lodge before his elevation to the throne. The conqueror's entourage, including his harem, occupied the royal chambers, and the Afghan soldiers ran amok in the bazaars of Delhi, looting and pillaging. Intizamuddola was named Vazir and told to deliver the 20 million rupees that he had pledged. When he could not produce the amount, his old mother, Sholapuri Begum, whose father-in-law, Muhammad Amir Khan, and husband, Kamaruddin Khan, and son, Intazamuddala, had all been the leading lights of the Mughal court, was threatened with torture until she gave up the family wealth. Less than two million was recovered. Other nobles, including the deposed vizier, Imadul Mulk, were similarly extorted. Mughlani Begum, basking in the glow of her renewed prominence, acted as Amitya Abdali's collaborator, pointing his minions to the homes of noblemen where much wealth could be found. She also reported on the beauty of the women in the royal harem. Women, high-born or low, Hindu or Muslim, were kidnapped and molested. Mughlani Begum used her influence with Amitya Abdali to have Imad ul-Mulk pardoned and arranged his wedding with her daughter Umda Begum after he had first divorced his other wives. His divorced wife Ganna Begum, an accomplished poet and a woman of great refinement, was turned over to Mughlani Begum to serve as her maid. Amitya Abdali's son Tamur was married to Alamgir II's daughter Zuhra Begum. The spoils of Delhi were dispatched to Afghanistan under the supervision of Tamur. Najib Khan Rohila was named Mir Bakshi, and the emperor's older son Ali Gohar was named Vazir. Abdali then left Delhi and marched towards Agra and Mathura to reduce Raja Surajmal of Bharatpur. Imadul Mulk managed to return to favor, 
Because of his bravery and initiative during the Jat campaign, and in March, the position of Vazir was bestowed on him again by Abdali. Abdali sacked Mathura and Vrindavan, perpetrating terrible massacres, plundering and carrying off women as captives. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar quotes an unnamed Muslim diarist who witnessed the depredations of the Afghans in Mathura. Everywhere in lane and bazaar lay the headless trunks of the slain and the whole city was burning. Many buildings had been knocked down. A Muslim jeweler of the city, robbed of everything and fasting for several days, said that for seven days following the general slaughter, the water flowed of blood-red color and then turned yellow. At the edge of the stream, I saw a number of huts of Hindu ascetics, in each of which lay a severed head with the head of a dead cow applied to its mouth and tied to it with a rope around its neck. The same diarist wrote about the sack of Vrindavan. Wherever you gazed, you beheld heaps of slain. You could only pick your way with difficulty owing to the quantity of bodies lying about and the amount of blood spilt. At one place that we reached, we saw about 200 dead children lying in a heap. Not one of the dead bodies had a head. The stench and effluvium in the air were such that it was painful to open your mouth or even draw breath. Abdali managed to overpower the Jat stronghold of Ballabagar and then sent his forces to overrun Gokul, the seat of the Vallabhacharya sect. There, a band of 3,000 naked, ash-smeared Naga sannyasis or ascetics offered stiff resistance. The Afghans were persuaded that there was no wealth to be found at a hermitage and retreated without destroying the temple. The city of Agra was attacked and plundered as well. The Afghans were camped at Mahavan by the Yamuna River, which was choked with corpses and half-burned bodies. Cholera broke out and the Afghans petitioned their king, asking that they return home. At the end of March 1757, Ahmed Shah Abdali decided to turn back. Estimates of the booty from the fourth invasion of Ahmed Shah Abdali range from 30 million rupees to more than 100 million. However, Ahmed Shah Abdali was not yet done. Mughlani Begum had already told him about the beauty of the 16-year-old daughter of the late Emperor Muhammad Shah, Hazrat Begum. She had been desired by the Emperor Alamgir himself, but she had spurned his advances, saying that she preferred death to marrying him. When Ahmed Shah Abdali expressed a desire to marry her during his return home, the widows of Muhammad Shah, Malika-e-Zamani and Sahiba Mehel, tried their utmost to prevent it, even attempting to bribe Mughlani Begum into convincing Abdali that the girl was homely and not fit for him to marry. Abdali was not to be deterred. In the words of Dr. Jadunath Sarkar, on 5th April, she was taken, decked as a bride, to Ahmed Shah's tents. Malika-e-Zamani and Shifa Mehel 
and Mohtaram Unnisa, a daughter of the late Emperor Ahmad and a nursling of Malika Izamani from her infancy, accompanied the weeping bride in exile out of India. With this party went 16 other ladies of the Delhi harem, but 400 maid servants who were being dragged away with their mistresses escaped and dispersed to their homes. Mughlani Begum was jubilant. Her daughter had finally been married to Imadul Mulk, who was vizier again and back in favor. Amacha Abdali, in recognition of her services, had conferred upon her the Jalandar Dawab as well as Jammu and Kashmir. She appointed Adina Beg as her deputy in Jalandar, Raja Ranjit Deo in Jammu, and her kinsman Khaja Ibrahim Khan in Kashmir. Her jubilation, however, did not last long, as Abdali decided to appoint his son Temur to govern Lahore, with Jahan Khan as his deputy. He made a host of new appointments in Sarand, Jalandar, Kashmir, and Multan, retaining Ranjit Deo and giving him more territory around Sialkot. The Begum followed him all the way to the river Jhelum begging and pleading, but he was unrelenting and he commanded Jahan Khan to pension her off. The Begum haughtily refused the pension and returned penniless to Lahore. The Sikhs harassed the caravan of Tamur Shah as he marched back through their lands laden with booty. Allah Singh and his band fell upon the prince in the vicinity of Sarand and decamped with some of the looted treasure of Delhi. In retaliation, when Tamur and Jahan Khan reached the Jalandar Dwab, they sacked the town of Kartarpur and desecrated the Gurdwaras there. After Abdali himself, who was following the prince, arrived in Lahore, he sent a detachment to Amritsar to sack the city and desecrate the Harmandar Sahib and several other Gurdwaras. After Ahmad Shah Abdali left Lahore on his return journey to Kandahar, the Sikhs under Charat Singh Shukar Chakya fell upon him again. In his work Ahmad Shah Durrani, Dr. Ganda Singh writes, With his picked Sikh Savars, he would pounce upon the Afghans in the evening when they were pitching their tents for the night's halt, fight for some time, then disappear in the darkness, with whatever he could lay his hands on. The Shah had to keep his men alert the whole night, but he would come up again at odd hours in the morning when they were packing and loading their baggage for the day's march. He kept lurking about the camp at some distance during the day to avoid a pitched battle. 
the Shah wished to fight a decisive battle with him, but Charat Singh gave him no such opportunity and kept on harrying him in this vexing manner day after day till he had got to the river Indus and crossed it. Lahore was now firmly in the grip of the Afghans, governed by Tamur Shah and garrisoned by 10,000 Afghans under the command of Jahan Khan. Baba Deep Singh, the leader of the Shaheed Missile, was 75 at that time. He had lived through some of the most momentous times in Sikh history. As a young man of 17, he had been initiated into the Khalsa by none other than Guru Gobind Singh himself on the Visakhi of 1699 in Anandpur. When the Guru was at Saboki Talwandi, he had assisted Pai Mani Singh when he was preparing a recension of the Guru Granth Sahib. After the Guru left for the Deccan, he remained at Talwandi Sabo, looking after the Gurdwara that came to be known as Damdama Sahib. He had fought at the side of Banda Singh Bahadur in the battles of Chappar Chidi and Sadora. He had been a prominent commander in Nawab Kapoor Singh's Taruna Dal, and when the Sikhs were organized into the 11 missiles of the Dal Khalsa, he had been chosen to lead one of them. Gyani Thakkar Singh, in his work, Shaheed Bilas Baba Deep Singh, writes that after the desecration of Sri Harmandar Sahib by the Afghans, a group of distressed Sikhs traveled to Damdama Sahib to petition the sage. Babe Deep Singh Ji Paas Bharke Dade Utte Aas Aak Sunaya Sara Haal Beet Reha Jo Singha Naal Sri Amrit Sar Gur Darbar Karan Bead Bhi Jo Chandar Sunke Singh Shaheed Piyare Garj Uthe Sun Ser Karare Farke Hoat Bhuja Bohrani Asi Na Peende Na Hun Paani to Baba Deep Singh they went, their hearts were filled with hope, told the sage of what had passed, tyranny with which Singhs did cope, how the Sri Harmandar Sahib had defiled the Afghan core on hearing the sorry tale, like a lion did he roar, quivered lips and mighty arms, water I shall drink no more. Adik damdame rehtal vandi, hute beer bar bali ghamandi, sunbe adbi boho gurdare, chandi chadi tehe atbhare. At the shrine damdama talvandi, host of warriors fierce and proud, when they heard the terrible tale, on each brow of rage a cloud. The old warrior strapped on his khanda or double edged sword and sent messages to Sikhs at Anandpur and Tarantaran, calling for volunteers. Ik hazar Singh mil sare, paunche Tarantaran gurdware. One thousand Sikhs mighty band at Tarantaran hallowed land. Baba Deep Singh and his band of a thousand armed Sikhs made a vow. They would march upon the Sri Harmandar Sahib, reclaim it, and show the Afghans that the desecration of Guru Arjan's sacred shrine would not be tolerated. Tahmas Maskeen, the former slave of Mir Manu, was present in Lahore, and as a retainer in the service of Mughlani Begum, 
with visibility in the court of Taimur Shah, he was commanded to join the expedition that was launched when word of Baba Deep Singh's band reached Lahore. He was thus an eyewitness. The description of the battle that followed is from his work, the Tahmasnama. One day intelligence was received that a large body of Sikhs had assembled at Chakguru, or Amritsar, for a religious bath and were causing tumult and violence. Taimur Shah's troops under Haji Atayek Khan were sent out subduing the country, settling matters, and chastising the Sikhs. Jahan Khan wrote a letter to Haji Atai Khan informing him about the disturbances. He asked him to reach the Chuck by a sudden march with all of his troops. He also issued a proclamation in the city of Lahore after the manner of Afghanistan that everybody, whether a servant of the state or otherwise, possessing a horse, should get ready for the campaign and accompany him. Jahan Khan's army, which was about 2,000 strong, marched from Lahore. Next day, the army marched and reached a place two coasts on this side of the Chuck, the village Golerval, five miles from Amritsar. The Sikhs got this intelligence and attacked us on all four sides. The battle began. The contestants started firing and using other weapons against each other. The Sikhs closely besieged the army. Fighting raged strongly. The Sikhs pressed the army so hotly that many people became distressed and started fleeing. The Sikhs had not allowed the fleeing army to escape, so the fleeing persons had to return to the main army. Jahan Khan took out his sword and wounded a few of his men, saying, Why did you flee? Things became very difficult for us. Everyone was at the end of his resources. At this stage, Haji Atay Khan arrived with a strong army. The Sikhs, who were proud of their bravery, were killed by the ruthless swords and the guns of the soldiers. They were defeated. Unable to make a stand, they fled. The army pursued them up to Chakguru. Their holy place was a screened shrine. We saw five Sikh infantrymen at the gate. They were killed by our army. Maskeen does not mention Baba Deep Singh by name, but a retelling of this tale would be incomplete without the Sikh perspective. During a fierce skirmish close to Ramroni, Baba Deep Singh was struck so hard with the sword that his head was almost severed. Holding his bleeding neck with one hand, his double-edged sword in the other, the venerable sage fought his way to Sri Harmandar Sahib, which was still quite a distance away. Girya dhar jad es pathan, bajji teg singhanu aan, utarya sis singhada jab hi, reha khalota dhar phir tab hi, dharm singh ne keha prakar, singha bachan na apna haar, tu te keha sudhasar jaun, apna tan ja utthe laun, Eta Ram Roni Asthan Pancham Guru Gurdwara Maan Zad E Bachan Singh Ne Gaya Tade Kubund Singh Da Dhaya 
ਹੱਥ ਵਿੱਚ ਖੜਗ ਚਮਕਦੀ ਭਾਰੀ ਪਿੱਛੇ ਚਲੇ ਸਿੰਘ ਬਲਧਾਰੀ ਦੇਖ ਕੁਬੰਦ ਸਿੰਘ ਦਾ ਲੜਦਾ ਅੱਗੇ ਕੋਈ ਪਠਾਨ ਨਾ ਅੜਦਾ ਦੇਖ ਦੁਰਾਨੀ ਸਭ ਘਬਰਾਏ ਗਏ ਭਾਗ ਕੋਈ ਰਹਿਣ ਨਾ ਪਾਏ ਸਿੰਘ ਜੀ ਸੁਦਾ ਸਰੋਵਰ ਤੀਰ ਗਿਰੇ ਆਨ ਕਰ ਸਹਿਜ ਸਰੀਰ ਸੀਸ ਰਾਮ ਸਰੋਵਰ ਪਾਸ ਤੇ ਧੜ ਇਥੇ ਲਿਆਂਦ ਖਾਸ as the khan fell to the ground striking sword was seen to maul severed by the blow his head still he stood he would not fall dharm singh was heard to say to your word you must stay true you swore to go to the sacred pool there to your life to bid adieu only at ram rani are we by the temple you were stirred when the singh he heard these words loins he was seen to gird in his hands a shining sword follow him sick warrior strong by his leadership inspired slicing through the afghan throng all the afghans struck with fear helter skelter start to flee by the sacred pool the singh his resting place it was to be by ram sarovar lay his head his body there they all could see like the story of the martyrdom of bai taru who refused to give up his faith the tale of baba deep singh which has him continuing to fight headless against heavy odds to keep his vow looms large in the consciousness of the sikhs this too is a tale that every sikh child hears growing up and is an eternal reminder of how the sikhs conducted themselves in the face of tyranny Just as Singh Aluwalia was the principal leader of the Sikhs of the time, he summoned the leaders of the Sikh bands to plot a suitable response to the desecration of the Sri Harmandar Sahib and the slaying of Baba Deep Singh. Serendipitously, an opportunity presented itself. Adina Beg, sometimes the ally of the Sikhs and at other times their adversary, had been removed from his long-standing position as the deputy governor of the Jalandhar Dawab when Ahmed Shah Abdali had put a new regime in place in Punjab. However, he managed to worm his way back into the good graces of Taimur Shah. He was restored to the command of the Jalandhar Dawab for an annual tribute of 3.5 million rupees. Further, he had obtained dispensation from Taimur Shah to exempt himself from attending the Lahore court elements opposed to him at Lahore poisoned the young governor's mind 
and he decided to summon Dina Beg with the intention of arresting him, extorting him, and eventually deposing him. The wily Adina Beg went into hiding in the Shivalik hills and started negotiations with Jassa Singh Aluwalia and Sordivar Bagh Singh of Kartarpur, and also enticed Sadik Beg, the deputy governor of Sarand, and Raja Bhup Singh of Nalagarh to join him against the Afghans. Khoja Mirza, who had been serving under the Afghans, defected as well and joined Adina Beg's ranks. Tamur Shah summoned Murad Khan, the governor of Multan, who arrived with 10,000 men. The combined forces of Multan and Lahore, under the command of Murad Khan, marched out to capture Adina Beg. Adina Beg had managed to put together a force 25,000 strong, including a very large Sikh contingent, as he emerged from the hills to meet the advancing Afghans. During a council of war between Sordivar Bagh Singh, Jassa Singh Aluwalia and Adina Beg, a practical difficulty emerged. In the words of Ratan Singh Pangu, Tab Nabab Khalse Kahi Ham Tum Gurki Aas Savere Maro Kabli Ham Tum Kam Hue Ras Tabe Khalse Yon Has Kahi Ham Tum Ral Mil Larno Nahi Jabe Khal se Uthe Talwar Bin Pachan Sab Hue Hain Maar Tab Nawab Ne Ais Thehrai Hamri Fauj Sir Tange Haryai Tabe Khal se Lai Suman Ham Chhade Yoh Tumhe Pehchan So Kino Prate Uth Sir Par Kanak Tangaye Dera Kino Kuch Tab Dai Ladai Paaye Adina Beg says to the Sikhs, My faith I place in you now. Come morrow, let us slay Afghans. Partnership, let us avow. Said the Sikhs now with a laugh, By your side often fight we not. In battle when we swing our swords, Might not your men's heads be sought? Nawab a stratagem devised, On their heads leaves you will see. In assent the Khalsa nodded, Thus your men we will let be. Mughal soldiers rose at dawn, fixed on their heads stalks of wheat. Then the camp all of them left to the Afghan force to meet. The Sikhs were going to fight the Afghans, but Adina Beg's soldiers, also Muslims, could barely be told apart from the enemy. The Sikhs, who had spent a lifetime battling Mughal soldiers, did not want to attack their allies in the heat of battle by accident. Adina Beg's men fought with stalks of wheat affixed to their helmets. Surely it must have confused the Afghans. A fierce battle was fought at Mahilpur, close to Hushyarpur. Even though the Afghans had the advantage of light artillery mounted on camels, they could not withstand the fierce onslaught of the Sikh cavalry. Karam Singh of Panjagarh was one of the heroes of the battle, whose name Ratan Singh Pangu mentions in his account. The Sikhs and Adina Beg won a great victory and Murad Khan fled, leaving his cannon behind. The Sikhs fell upon the city of Jalandhar and plundered it. Sordivar Bagh Singh, seeking revenge for the attack on Kartarpur, the chief instigator. Adina Beg paid the Sikhs more than 100,000 rupees, and asked them to stop looting the city. 
Emboldened, the Sikh started plundering the surroundings of Batala and Kalanor, then the entire Dwab, and finally went further west, reaching the outskirts of Lahore. Tahmas Maskeen, present at Lahore at the time, writes, Disturbances now reached the environs of the city of Lahore. Every night, thousands of Sikhs used to descend on the city to devastate the outlying suburbs. None stirred out of the city to fight against them. Instead, orders were issued that the city gates be closed at nightfall. In short, the situation had become extremely difficult and the entire administration broke down. At the time of Ahmad Shah Abdali's return in April 1756, the Vizier Imadul Mulk's Maratha allies only had a small presence in Delhi. 5,000 Marathas under the command of Antaji Mankeshwar had been in the Emperor's service with Imadul Mulk personally responsible for paying their considerable salaries. In the middle of May 1756, the Peshwa's brother, Raghunath Rao, sent a detachment of 20,000 horsemen north. As they started taking control of the territory in the Yamuna Ganga Dwab, they faced little resistance. They had an understanding now with Surajmal, who paid them tribute, and Shujao Dola, incensed at the imperial court's plan to split Avad between two of the emperor's sons, remained neutral. The Marathas advanced all the way to Meerut and Saharanpur, primarily dispossessing the agents of the Rohillas or of the imperial court who held those territories. The pickings, however, were slim, as all of these lands had been ravaged very recently. Najib Khan Rohilla, who had been Amateur Abdali's most significant Hindustani ally, had been left in charge of Delhi and the emperor. The Rohilla chief, used his new power to appropriate 80% of all revenues that flowed into the capital, Raghunath Rao, desperate for funds to maintain his army, turned his attention to Delhi. Bapu Rao Hingane, the Maratha agent at court, emerged from hiding at Kumbher and returned to the capital. The Marathas laid siege to Delhi in July, with Vizier Imadul Mulk allied with them, Food started to become scarce in Delhi, and Najib Khan Rohila became extremely desperate. He even sacked Imad ul Mulk's well defended mansion in Delhi, killing all the guards and greatly dishonoring the women of the vizier's family, most of whom were forced to flee on foot through the streets of Delhi. The fighting continued into August, and the obdurate Rohila chief who refused to come to terms, tried to hold out as Malhar Rao Holkar attacked Kashmiri Gate in the north, Imadul Mulk attacked the Lahore Gate in the northwest, 
and Raghunath Rao attacked the Delhi Gate in the south. Finally, Najib Khan surrendered in September 1757, and the Marathas became the new masters of Delhi. Najib Khan, his honor intact and unbowed, rode out to his estates, intent on vengeance. Delhi was devastated. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar writes, The agony of the imperial city showed no sign of ending. It had been squeezed dry of its wealth twice by Abdali and his troops in the first quarter of the year 1757. Najib's war requisitions had kept up the strain in July and August. The high price and scarcity of foodstuffs had continued throughout, and during the two months of September and October, a shaking fever raged with violence throughout the entire city and left the eyes affected. Then came an epidemic of brain fever. In the following March and April, grain became very dear. Moong dal was so scarce that only half a seer could be had for a rupee. Even medicines became very dear and scanty on account of the exactions of the Marathas. Inside the walls, theft prevailed greatly owing to the breakdown of the emperor's administration. Respectable men like Sayyids and Mughals, who formerly used to earn a living as soldiers, now found no employment, while those in service could not get their salaries. The Jagirdars received nothing from their Jagirs, which other men had usurped. Every one of these classes took to burglary, collecting large gangs armed with muskets. The head of the city police was accused of shielding the burglars and sharing in their spoils. To crown this long-drawn agony came an earthquake on 21st November 1757. The first shock, felt about one o'clock in the afternoon, was so violent that doomsday seemed at hand. Adina Beg had managed to stave off the Afghan threat for the moment, but his victory had come at a price. Always nervous of the fighting prowess of the Sikhs, he spent many sleepless nights wondering what their resurgence might mean to him. The Sikhs were far from being dependable allies, and with his force of 10,000 men, Adina Beg knew that he could not withstand a new Afghan attack which were surely coming. He opened negotiations with Raghunath Rao, who had just taken Delhi. He invited the Marathas to come to the defense of Punjab, promising to pay them 100,000 rupees each day they marched and 50,000 each day they rested 
during their stay in the Punjab. The Marathas, emboldened by their success against Najib Khan, were already talking about marching on Lahore and expelling the Afghans, and were hence most gratified by Adina Beg's offer. Abdus Samad Khan, Abdali's commander in Sarand, was in Sunam engaged in an expedition against Allah Singh of the Fulkia missile, who had earlier attacked Daimur Shah's baggage train. On hearing of the advance of Malhar Rao Holkar, Abdus Samad Khan quickly returned from Sunam and advanced to Thanesar to take on the Marathas, but they retreated, concentrating instead on plundering the lands between Thanesar and Delhi. The Maratha invasion of Punjab started in February 1758. A force of 200,000 Marathas advancing towards Sarand was joined by Adina Beg and his Sikh allies. Abdul Samad Khan was easily defeated and Sarand was taken. Ratan Singh Pangu writes that Adina Beg did not have to pay his Sikh allies to join his enterprise, for the hated city of Sarand still loomed large in the consciousness of the Sikhs. Singan kehyo ham take na leve, gijalan ko ham mar gireve, so singan so shahar lutavo, to singan to turt kadhavo, singan loot so maaf karai, Quran kasam un bhoti khai, singan dera punjabi paya, Sarand shahar nu halla karaya, ਸਤਗੁਰ तब सिंगण बहु लूट मचाई चंगी वस्त सिंग डेरण आई दुए दिन मरठे लुट पाए फेर चतरफों सब वड़ आए पेमेंट डिड द सिक्स रिफ्यूज वी विल स्ले अफगान्स दे सेड इफ वी हैव लाइसेंस टू प्लंडर स्विफ्टली देयर वी विल बी लेड ऑन द कुरान अदीना स्वोर टू प्लंडर द सिक्स हैव लीव First the six they set up camp, then Sarand they went to reeve, as the Guru had decreed, thus on that day it came to pass, plundered and destroyed the Singhs, eagerly attacked en masse, fell upon Sarand the six, like monkeys Lanka attacked, leaped upon the city walls, on every eminent six were packed, as the six leaped into sarand could not before them afghan stand those that fought they were cut down defeated was the afghan band wantonly plundered the singhs wealth and goods carried away marathas did then follow suit looting did they join the fray thomas maskeen writes the marathas and the six so thoroughly looted sarand that none of its inhabitants high or low male or female had a cloth left on his person pulling the houses down they carried off the timber and dug up the floors for buried money as the massive army of marathas sikhs and adina beg's men 
Flushed from the easy victory at Sarand march towards Lahore, Tamur Shah considered his position. He was badly outnumbered. The Lahore fort was poorly provisioned and in a state of disrepair. The resurgent Sikh population throughout the Punjab was hostile to the Afghans, and there was no hope of relief from Afghanistan, as Ahmad Shah Abdali was busy putting down rebellions. Tamur Shah decided to flee and set up camp across the Ravi River. Tamas Maskeen writes, The mother of Tamur Shah, the family members of Jahan Khan, and the other chiefs were along with their goods conveyed from the city to the Afghan camp. The goods were more than could be carried by the available means of transport. They had to be conveyed in two or three trips. Next day, 20th April 1758, it was about nine in the morning. 500 Maratha horsemen and 100 horsemen from Khwaja Mirza Khan's army under the leader Ashur Ali Khan, who I knew, appeared at the Delhi gate of the city. They showed me the required orders. I immediately opened the gates and handed over the city to them. I then returned to my residence. Tamur Shah had reigned in Lahore for one year and two months. The retreating Afghans were pursued up to the Chenab River by a contingent of 10,000 Maratha horsemen, 15,000 Sikhs, and the troops of Khaja Mirza. So much plunder fell into the pursuers' hands that Khaja Mirza and his men became extremely wealthy. Many of Tamur Shah's Uzbek, Kizilbash, and Afghan troops were stranded on the right bank of the Chenab for want of boats. The Sikh contingent included several prominent chiefs such as Charat Singh Shukarchakia, Tara Singh Gabba, Jassa Singh Aluwalia, Jassa Singh Ramgadia, Hari Singh Pangi, Lena Singh Pangi, Gujar Singh Pangi, and Chanda Singh Pangi. They led 200 of the Afghan captives to Amritsar, where they were put to work cleaning the sacred tank of the Sri Harmandar Sahib, which had been defiled by Ahmad Shah Dali and his minions. Raghunath Rao, Malhar Rao Holkar, and Adina Beg arrived in Lahore with the rest of the force. The Marathas spent no more than a month in Lahore. Raghunath Rao clearly understood that administering Lahore which was far from the Maratha homeland, surrounded by a sea of hostile, warlike Sikhs, was untenable. Adina Beg was appointed Lord of the Punjab for an annual tribute of seven and a half million rupees. Khaja Mirza once again became the governor of Lahore. Writes Tamas Maskeen, Khaja Mirza Khan said to Adina Beg Khan, if you appoint me to this place, you should take away the Begum Moglani with you. Otherwise, I will not be able to administer this area in any real sense of the term. Adina Beg Khan gave a few thousand rupees to the Begum. He provided 150 carriages and a few bullock carts for transporting her establishment. He then took her away with him. The Maratha chiefs also left Lahore along with Adina Beg Khan.
did not take very long for Adina Beg to turn on his Sikh allies. The Mughals, propped up by Maratha power, held Lahore again, though Abdali had a legitimate claim to it. However, in realistic terms, Punjab had two masters now, Adina Beg and the Sikhs. A confrontation was inevitable. Adina Beg put together a large force and attacked Ram Rani, taking the Sikhs by surprise. The Sikhs regrouped and got ready to punish Adina Beg, but he died from an attack of colic in September 1758. The Sikh chiefs continued to consolidate their power. Jarat Singh Shukarchakia took firm control of the lands between the Ravi and the Chenab, with a base at Gujaranwala. The Pangi Sardar similarly grew their territories to the west. Jassa Singh Aluwalia, whose territory lay in the Jalandar Dwab, strengthened his position after the death of Adina Beg. Ala Singh and his Fulkiya clan became dominant across the Sutlej, and he became the virtual monarch of the Malwa. Jaising Kanaya defeated the Mughal chiefs of Kadiyan and took their territory. A Sarbat Khalsa was held at the Akal Takhat on the occasion of Diwali in 1758, a few months after the death of Adina Beg. There was a discussion about taking on the Afghans, who would eventually try to reassert their control on the Punjab. The Marathas, who saw Punjab as their fief now, were already poised to send a new force north. While control of Lahore was symbolic, the Dal Khalsa decided that it was not the time to take on either the Afghans or the Mughals, represented by the Marathas. The Sikh chiefs decided to stay focused on expanding the territories they controlled. Wazir Imadul Mulk tried to take advantage of the anarchy in the Punjab after the death of Adina Beg to reclaim the province for Delhi. However, in March 1759, Raghunath Rao, dismayed by the loss of revenue that had been promised by Adina Beg, decided to reassert Maratha authority over the Punjab. A strong force commanded by Dataji Sindhya arrived at the banks of the Satluj in April 1759. He dispatched his lieutenant Sabaji Sindhya to take control of Lahore, who took over as governor, and himself left Sarand to reduce Najib Khan Ruhilla. The Afghans marched to take Lahore again in August under the command of Jahan Khan. Sabaji's force killed Jahan Khan's son, and the routed Afghans fled back over the Indus. Sabaji's Marathas had advanced all the way to Atak. Ahmad Shah Abdali was very aware of the events in Punjab while he was dealing with rebellions within his realm. In addition, he had been receiving multiple letters from a variety of interests in Hindustan. The most insistent ones had been from his chosen lieutenant, Najib Khan Ruhilla, who had been driven out of Delhi and had been besieged by the forces of Dataji Sindhya at Shukartal. Najib Khan wanted Ahmad Shah Abdali to come to his rescue, as did the Rajput kings Madho Singh of Jaipur and Bijay Singh of Marwar. The Rajputs had not confronted Abdali during his previous invasions, 
With the exception of Ishwari Singh during his unfortunate misadventure at Manupur, and the Afghan king had a healthy respect for their fighting abilities, the Rajputs, who had been harried by the Marathas for decades, wanted Abdali to join in an alliance against the southern interlopers. Emperor Alamgir II, suffering the tyranny of his vizier Imadul Mulk, had also written to Abdali, asking him to come to his aid. On October 1759, smarting from the defeats that the Marathas and the Sikhs had handed Tamur Shah and Jahan Khan, Ahmad Shah Abdali launched his fifth invasion of Hindustan. His main objective was to crush the power of the Marathas. Gyani Gyan Singh writes in the Panth Prakash, Uttareo atak urar katak le, teen lakh jab jangi, chhod Punjab marathe rehte, bhai kurang kurangi, mulki log graman dhaman, nij taj chale palai, thore thore bhajda pariyan, dar gijliyon te khai, nij nij jana lekar sab jan, hindu lok pahari, Dase kitak baho base malve, ujre nagar hajari, tabke te pade ablo, beach punjab apare, katal karat ar lutat marat gilje aedarare. On the attack with Ahmad Shah came three hundred thousand men, fled Punjab, Marathas ran away on horseback, galloped then. Towns and villages, all the land ran away in haste, all men. To escape, they all were eager, the Afghan hordes were back again. Fearful for their lives were they, Hindus and the hillmen too. Everywhere Malwa included, many towns Afghans did strew. Such a wind of misfortune in all of Punjab it blew. Murder, mayhem, plunder, pillage, all this and more they did do. The governor of Lahore, Sabaji, fled without a fight, abandoning Punjab to the pillaging Afghan hordes, and arrived at Dataji Sindhya's camp on November 8. The Dal Khalsa was warily watching the approach of Abdali, and the chiefs met at the Akal Takhat as the Afghans took Lahore. A force was mustered quickly, and the Sikhs attacked the Afghan garrison at Lahore, scattering it and pursuing the soldiers to Bhagwanpura and Begumpura, and relieving them of their pack animals and baggage. The furious Ahmad Shah Abdali ordered Jahan Khan to engage the Sikhs. Dr. Ganda Singh, in his work Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia, writes, When Ahmad Shah came to know of the Sikh attack, he sent Jahan Khan with an army to engage them. Sardar Jassa Singh was fully prepared, and as soon as the Afghans arrived, Sardar Jassa Singh and Jaya Singh attacked them from the right, and Sardar Chadat Singh, Gujar Singh, and Lena Singh from the left. In this way, a fierce battle continued raging up to the evening, and 2,000 Afghans were killed and their commander Jahan Khan was wounded. At night, both the armies retreated from the battlefield. The Khalsa forces spread out in Maja, so that at the time of Ahmad Shah's departure, they could attack the Afghans if a suitable opportunity came their way. 
Dr. Ganda Singh attributes this account to the Marathi historian Vishwanath Rajwade. The siege of Shukratal had been dragging on for five months, and Najib Khan showed no sign of surrendering. Dataji Sindhya knew that stopping Abdali was critical, but he could not leave Shukratal with nothing to show for it. He sent urgent letters to his allies, Surajmal, and Nawab Ahmed Khan Bangash of Farukhabad and urged Malhar Rao Holkar, who was in Rajputana, to join him. He also sent messengers to the vizier Imad ul-Mulk, demanding his support. Imad ul-Mulk left Delhi with the emperor's permission and set out for Shukartal. During his journey on November 16, he got news that the Afghans had taken Lahore and had arrived in Sarand. Ahmad Shah Abdali was headed to Delhi again. The events of 1757 were fresh in the vizier's mind and desperate to prevent his puppet emperor from being used against him again, he rushed back to Delhi. On November 29, he arranged the murder of Emperor Alamgir II and the following day he got his former rival and uncle Intazamuddala strangled. The Deori i Salatin, the abode of the hapless sons and grandsons of Mughal emperors past, yielded Muhiyu Sunnat, the grandson of Kambaksh, the youngest son of the Emperor Aurangzeb. Imad ul Mulk had him crowned the new emperor with the name Shah Jahan II. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar writes, that the murder of Alamgir II was an insane and absolutely profitless crime. If Imad had spared the meekest of meek usurpers, hoary head, it would not in any way have added to the number of his enemies, nor weakened his own strength, which was already reduced to nothing. When news of the murder of Alamgir II and Intazam Dola reached Ahmad Shah Abdali, he was furious at Imadul Mulk's treachery. Pillaging his way across Punjab, Abdali crossed the Satlaj and then the Yamuna. Dataji Sindhya, who had lifted the ineffectual siege of Shukartal, had been following Afghan movements looking for an opportunity to attack. Najib Khan Rohila, however, helped Abdali outflank the Marathas, and his forces met with Abdalis in Saharanpur. A fierce battle was fought at Bradi Ghat on the banks of the Yamuna, 10 miles north of Delhi, on January 9, 1760. The Marathas were defeated, and Dataji Sindhya was killed. When Imadul Mulk heard of the fall of his ally, he fled Delhi for Bharatpur, to seek refuge with the Jats. Abdali continued to march to subdue Surajmal and the Jats, from whom he demanded tribute. The Jats, secure behind the thick walls of their forts at Deeg, Kumbher, and Bharatpur, were content to let the negotiations drag on. The Afghans and the Marathas engaged again on February 28th at Sikandrabad, in this battle, Malhar Rao Holkar was defeated by Jahan Khan. The Peshwa Balaji Baji Rao got word of the defeat of his forces at the hand of the Afghans. In a matter of months, all his hard-won gains in the north had been erased. He decided to send a large force 
under his most capable general to take on the Afghans. His first choice was his brother, Raghunath Rao, but he was in disgrace because of the failure of his last campaign, which had resulted in heavy debt. Sadashiv Rao Bhau, his cousin, was given supreme command of an army 30,000 strong. The Peshwa's 17-year-old son, Vishwas Rao, was anointed his nominal overlord and sent north with him. As Sadashiv Rao Bhau made his way north, Amitya Abdali was engaged in diplomacy, trying to cement alliances in preparation for the upcoming showdown with the Marathas. The Rohilas were already allied with Abdali, and the Rajput kings were, as usual, sitting on the fence, hedging their bets. The prize was Shuja Dola, the powerful Nawab of Avad, who was being lobbied by both the Marathas and the Afghans. In June, Sadashiv Rao Bhau was dismayed to learn that the Nawab of Avad had decided to form an alliance with Ahmad Shah Abdali. Ahmad Khan Bangash, the Nawab of Farukhabad, was also persuaded to join Abdali. Raja Surajmal, however, despite his long-standing feud with the Marathas, rejected Abdali's overtures. He had provided shelter to Imadul Mulk, and he made a commitment to help Sadashiv Rao Bhau take Delhi. Imadul Mulk's new puppet on the Delhi throne had a challenger. Ali Gohar, the son of Alamgir II, had declared his claim to the Mughal throne as his late father's rightful heir. He was at the time in the eastern provinces, where he had been living after escaping Delhi in May 1758 to escape the treacherous designs of Imadul Mulk. Ali Gohar, the ablest of Alamgir II's sons, had first gone into hiding with the Marathas when Imadul Mulk had tried to kill him, and then, wandering, destitute and friendless, he had made his way to Lucknow with the help of a few Rohila supporters. With the support of Shuja Dola, he made an attempt to establish himself in Bihar. On July 22, 1760, Sadashiv Rao Bhau sent a Maratha force reinforced by Surajmal and his Jats, commanded by Malhar Rao Holkar and Jankoji Sindhya to take Delhi. Imadul Mulk also accompanied them. In about 10 days, the Marathas overpowered the small force depending the capital and were back in control of Delhi. An audacious proposal arrived from Nawab Shujaudola. He proposed that Ali Gohar be proclaimed emperor with his son Jawan Bakht as heir. Shujaudola would be named vizier and a settlement would be negotiated between the Marathas and the Afghans under the terms of which Abdali would return to Kandahar and the Marathas would return to the Deccan. Surajmal and Imad ul Mulk were so offended by Sadashiv Rao Bhau's willingness to consider the proposal that they immediately left in a huff. Surajmal's defection was a huge blow to Sadashiv Rao Bhau and he was left with no powerful allies in the north. His difficulties were only to increase. The occupation of Delhi increased his expenses but gave him no additional revenue 
since the city had already been bled dry. As the new guardian of the imperial household, he also had to meet the expenses of its retainers. The Peshwa, already deep in debt, was unable to provide any funding beyond what he had given his cousin at the start of the campaign. Sadashiv Rao Bhau decided to attack the ferry station at Kunjpura on the Yamuna, which was vital to Abdali's supply lines as he was being sent provisions from Sarand. He anticipated that Kunjpura would also yield much-needed plunder that he could use for the maintenance of his army. On October 10, before setting out, he first deposed Shah Jahan II and in his place installed Ali Gohar as Shah Alam II in absentia with Jawan Bakht as his heir. He also declared that Shuja Dawla would be the new wazir, hoping to entice the Nawab away from Amacha Abdali. After taking Kunjpura successfully and plundering its riches, Sadashiv Rao Bhau arrived at Panipat on October 29, having learned that Abdali too had crossed the Yamuna at Bagpat while he was busy plundering and had cut off his communications with Delhi and the South. On November 1, Amacha Abdali arrived within seven miles of the Maratha entrenchments. The stage was set for the third battle of Panipat. Kashiraj Pandit, a clerk in the employ of Shujao Daula, was an eyewitness to the great battle between the Marathas and the Afghans. The description that follows is largely based on his account. Emetshah Abdali's force was roughly composed of 80,000 fighting men, which could be divided into two halves, his own forces and those of his Hindustani allies. His own contingent included 30,000 horsemen and 10,000 foot soldiers. His Hindustani contingent had 30,000 infantrymen and 10,000 horsemen. Of these, Najib Khan Rohila had contributed 26,000 and Nawab Shujaudala 4,000. In addition, Amacha Abdali had close to 120,000 irregulars who were almost as well-equipped as the Afghan troops. Sadashiv Rao Bhau had at his command 50,000 horsemen and 15,000 infantrymen, which included a crack infantry division under the command of Ibrahim Khan Gardi, trained by French officers. He also had 15,000 irregulars called Pindaris, 
who were really not fighting men. The numbers only told part of the story. Amacha Abdali's core force was highly disciplined, very well equipped, and mounted on excellent horses. Amacha Abdali also had stellar battle-scarred lieutenants, such as his vizier Shah Wali Khan, Jahan Khan, and Shah Pasand Khan. In contrast, the Marathas were highly indisciplined, and their commanders, while valiant, were either individualistic or inexperienced. Their mounts were decidedly inferior to those of the Afghans. Amacha Abdali had been trained by Nadir Shah, one of the greatest military commanders in history, and already had a lifetime of experience in battle strategy and tactics. The only experienced commander in the Maratha ranks was the doughty Malhar Rao Holkar, who, unlike the dashing and aristocratic Sadashiv Rao Bhau, came from humble beginnings and much preferred hitting and running to open warfare. There was a standoff between the two armies that lasted almost two months. Abdali held his troops back, testing Maratha's strength, and when Sadashiv Rao Bhau's Pindaris were able to steal some of the Afghan cattle and even two elephants without a response, the Marathas were jubilant, many even predicting that the seemingly intimidated invaders would soon be gone. The first major engagement was an attack on the Maratha trenches by the Rohilas on December 7, in which Balwantarao Mehendale, Sadashiv Rao Bhau's chief advisor, was killed. From that point onwards, the Afghan cavalry patrols cut off the Marathas' communication and food supplies. The Afghans had retaken Kunjpura and had seized grain that was bound for Panipat. The only supplies that made it to the Maratha camp through the blockade were sent by Ala Singh of Patiala, for which he collected a high price in cash. The residents of Panipat resented the Marathas and the suffering that resulted from the occupation of their city. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar quotes a resident, Shakir Khan, The Marathas felled all the timber and fruit trees of the gardens around Panipat. Our seven gardens, each of two to three hundred bigas, full of fruit trees and flowering plants, were thus destroyed. They employed the timber in supporting the walls of the ditch and raised gun platforms. For want of fuel, they consumed the planks, beams, and doors of the houses, ruining the roofs and walls. Marble slabs from the tombs of holy men were burned in kilns and turned into lime for their pan. Our city houses were demolished by cannonballs, and we were forced to exile ourselves from home. As conditions in the Maratha camp became more dire and food became scarce, Sadashiv Rao Bhau decided to sue for peace. He sent a news writer named Ganesh Pandit, who was in his employ, bearing a letter for Kashiraj Pandit, asking him to approach his master, Nawab Shujao Dola. Kashiraj Pandit writes that he also sent a handful of saffron and a turban set with rich jewels to the Nawab, who promised to intercede with Amacha Abdali. This, according to Kashiraj Pandit, was Abdali's response. The Shah said that he had nothing to do in the matter, that he came thither 
at the solicitation of his countrymen, the Rohillas and other Muslims, to relieve them from their fear of the Maratha yoke, that he claimed the entire conduct of the war, but left the Hindustani chiefs to carry on their negotiations as they pleased themselves. Nawab Shuja Dola and most of Abdali's Hindustani allies were ready to make peace with the Marathas, but Najib Khan Rohila was adamant. He said that the Marathas were in a weak position, and if they were allowed to leave, they would come back in full strength to ravage the north again. He managed to convince Abdali to overrule Nawab Shuja Dola, who he said came from a noble house but was inexperienced in the ways of the world. The Maratha camp was steeped in despair after the failure of negotiations. Kashiraj Pandit writes, At length, the chiefs and soldiers in a body surrounded the Bhau's tent and said to him, It is now two days that we have had nothing to eat. Do not let us perish in this misery. Let us make one spirited effort against the enemy and whatever is our destiny will come to pass. The Pau replied that he was of the same mind, and he was ready to abide by whatever they should resolve upon. At length, it was determined to march out of the lines an hour before daybreak, and placing the artillery in front to proceed to attack the enemy. They all swore to fight to the last extremity, and each person took a beetle leaf in the presence of his fellows in confirmation of this engagement, as is the custom among the Hindus. Sadashivrao Bhau, despite the brave words, made a final effort to parley, which proved to be a huge mistake. He sent this letter to Kashiraj Pandit. The cup is now full to the brim, and cannot hold another drop. If anything can be done, do it, or else answer me plainly at once. Hereafter, there will be no time for writing nor speaking. When the note arrived at three in the morning, Kashiraj Pandit read it to Nawab Shujao Dola. Just then, some of the Nawab's messengers also arrived with the news that the Marathas were stirring, the Nawab rushed to Abdali's tent to inform him, who quickly called a council of war. The Vizier Shah Wali Khan was ordered to command the main Afghan force at the center. Najib Khan Rohila was placed to the left of the Wazir, and Nawab Shuja Dala and Shah Pasand Khan further to his left. The other Rohila chiefs, Dundi Khan and Hafiz Rahmat Khan, were placed to the right of the Wazir and Ahmed Khan Bangash was placed further to the right. The extreme right and left flanks were each manned by 5,000 Afghan horsemen on magnificent Persian horses. The Afghan line was 7 miles in length and 2 in depth. About 60,000 men took the field on the Afghan side. In Kashiraj Pandit's words, By this time, objects began to be discernible, and we could perceive the colors of the Maratha line advancing slowly and regularly with their artillery in front. 
The Shah rode along the front of the line and examined the order of all the divisions. He then took post, where his little tent was pitched in front of the camp, but in the rear of the present line of battle, and gave orders for the attack to begin. Sadashiv Rao Bhau was personally leading the Maratha cavalry at the center of his line. His left flank was under the command of Ibrahim Khan Gardi and Malar Rao Holkar, supported by the young Jankoji Sindhya, commanded the right flank. The Marathas began with a customary cannonade, which was largely ineffective because the heavy guns could not be adjusted easily, most of the shots sailing over the heads of the Afghans. Ibrahim Khan Gardi's sepoys charged the Rohillas with fixed bayonets, killing or wounding 8,000 of them. Ibrahim Khan himself was wounded and his men took severe casualties. Sadashiv Rao Bhau charged the center of the Afghan line, breaking through the line of 10,000 Afghan horsemen, 7,000 Afghan musketeers, and 1,000 camels with jamburaks or light guns mounted on them. 3,000 Afghans fell in the onslaught. Kashi Raj Pandit saw Wazir Shah Ali Khan in great despair, berating his men who had started to flee. The two armies strained against each other for several hours, and by noon it seemed that the Marathas had the advantage. Ahmed Shah Abdali sent 10,000 men to reinforce the vizier at his center, and another 4,000 to the right flank. He also sent instructions to Najib Khan and Shah Pasand Khan on the left flank that when the vizier attacked, they should attack as well from the flank in concert. Writes Kashiraj Pandit, about one o'clock, these troops joined the Grand Vizier, who immediately mounted his horse and charged the body of the Maratha army where the Bhau commanded in person. Shah Pasand Khan and Najib Khan took them in the flank at the same time, which produced a terrible effect. The close and violent attack lasted for nearly an hour, during which time they fought on both sides with spears, swords, battle axes, and even daggers. Amachab Dali's corps of gunners surrounded the Marathas and began to rain matchlock fire on them, inflicting heavy casualties. The gallant Marathas kept charging as the mounted musketeers and the jamburaks decimated their ranks. Within an hour, Vishwas Rao, the 17-year-old son of the Peshwa, lay dead. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar describes the end of Sadashiv Rao Bhau. Half a mile from the front, a fair-colored, sharp-nosed, deep-eyed youth with a tall, robust frame was seen limping with the help of a short spear. He wore very costly pearls in his ears and around his neck with a highly ornamented vest. Throughout that afternoon, he had been seeking death, but death seemed to avoid him. Three horses had fallen under him during the battle. The first two were powerful chargers, but the third one only a sorry country mare that could not carry him far. He had received a spear wound and a musket shot in his thigh, the latter of which had thrown him down. 
as he was walking over the field like a man in a dream, utterly worn out by the last two months of anxiety and the wreck of all his hopes, a knot of five Durrani horsemen, lured by his splendid dress and rich jewels, surrounded him and cried out to him to surrender and save his life. But it was not his life that he was seeking to save, and he gave them no reply. The Afghan plunderers then attacked him. The wounded lion turned at bay and struck three or four of his assailants with his spear before he was killed and his head cut off and carried away. Thus perished Sadashivrao Bhau on the grave of his reputation and the imperialistic dreams of his race. Kashiraj Pandit describes the inevitable end. As if by enchantment, the whole Maratha army at once turned their backs and fled at full speed, leaving the field of battle covered with heaps of dead. The instant they gave way, the victors pursued them with the utmost fury and they gave no quarter. The slaughter is scarcely to be conceived, the pursuit continuing for ten or twelve coasts in every direction in which they fled. The fleeing Marathas that survived the Afghan soldiers were set upon by the angry residents of Panipat. Those who managed to limp out were attacked in the countryside by the very peasants that they had terrorized during their northern campaigns. The only kindness they received was at the hands of Raja Surajmal of Bharatpur, who provided food and shelter to every Maratha soldier or camp follower that managed to reach his realm. January 29, 1761, Amitabh Dali entered Delhi and he spent the next month enjoying the opulence of the Delhi palace, holding court at the Mughal Divane Khas. The Afghan troops, whose salary had not been paid for two years, were weary after the long campaign and were clamoring to go home, refusing to spend another summer in the heat of Hindustan. Nawab Shujaudala had returned to Awadh in a huff after a scuffle had broken out between his troops, who were Shia, and the Sunni Afghans. Ahmad Shah Abdali confirmed Shah Alam as the new emperor and Jawan Bakht as his heir. Najib Khan Rohila was appointed Mir Bakshi and Imadul Mulk, who was still hiding behind the walls of Raja Surajmal's fort, Wazir. On March 22, 1761, Amitabh Dali left Delhi to start the long march home. There were arrangements to be made for the territories that Abdali considered his. Zan Khan was appointed governor of Sarand, 
and Allah Singh on March 29 was confirmed as the ruler of the territory he held for an annual tribute of 500,000 rupees. While Abdali had been readying to fight the Marathas at Panipat, the Sikhs, under the command of Jassa Singh Aluwalia, had attacked the suburbs of Lahore, plundering and looting for 11 days. With him had been Hari Singh Bhangi, Jai Singh Kanaya, and Charat Singh Shukar Chakya. The governor of Lahore, Mir Muhammad Khan, had paid them 30,000 rupees to leave. Mir Muhammad Khan had been imprisoned at an annoyed Abdali's command, and his lieutenant Sarbuland Khan had been appointed the new governor. When Abdali reached Lahore from Delhi, he transferred Sarbuland Khan to Multan and appointed Khwaja Ubaid Khan as the new governor of Lahore. Dr. Hariram Gupta, in his History of the Sikhs, Evolution of the Sikh Confederacies, writes about how the Sikhs constantly harried Abdali on his return journey. The molestation of the Durrani by the Sikhs began from the Sataluj when he crossed it on his return early in April. Being loaded with the rich booty of Delhi and the Dwab, he could not turn his attention towards them and saved himself by throwing up a mud wall around his camp every night. At the ferry of Goindwal on the Bias, the Sikhs are said to have relieved the invader of a number of captives who were afterwards sent to their homes. The roving bands of Sikhs did not allow any rest to the retreating Afghan army until the Indus was crossed. They hovered around the Afghan line of march, cutting off the supplies and doing what damage they could, never making a direct attack. While the back of Maratha power was broken at Panipat, Ahmed Shah Abdali, who never had any intentions to rule Hindustan, suffered heavy losses and made no lasting gains. Perhaps the one individual who benefited the most was Najib Khan Rohila, who, defying Abdali's parting instructions, declared himself regent with the blessing of the Queen Mother Begum Zinat Mahal and thus made himself the master of Delhi. The real victors were the Sikhs. The last vestiges of Mughal power in the Punjab had been propped up by the Marathas, who were no more in play. The Afghan threat, while still very real, was distant. The Sikh Sardars now had the opportunity of a lifetime. The prize was the Punjab. The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of Night of the Restless Spirits, a collection of short fiction that examines the tumultuous events of 1984 from many different angles. His previous book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, tells the stories of many colorful characters who populated the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. The Story of the Six is produced by Almost Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Aftar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Raga Madhukon's on flute by the maestro Steve Gorn, accompanied on tabla by Amit Kavtekar. Season 3 of Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawney Family Foundation, 
and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer, Erica Wong. Thank you for joining us.